0: Before we begin, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the infinitely merciful one, to he whose compassion is beyond compare, the magnificent one, the undefeated, the unvanquished one, he whose kindness and compassion towards all sentient beings is unsurmountable, magnanimous, enormous, greater than the love, affection of a million mothers and a million fathers put together. We speak of none other than the Supreme Buddha who is our teacher, our guide, our master, the epitome of wisdom and the fount of all things that are good and great in this universe. Let us take a moment to pay homage to the Gautam Buddha. <clears throat> <clears throat> Arahato Sama Namo Bhagavato Samma A few of us are feeling a bit under the weather these days. So you must forgive me for the poor sound quality. Doctors' orders are to get some rest, but how can I? When the hearts that belong to the hands that feed me have burning questions. And People out there are suffering. in comparison, this is nothing. Because our aim is to free all sentient beings, as many as we possibly can. For we are alive. That is the success. Those are the success criteria that our teachers always set for us. It's not how many mouths we have fed, how many heads we have sheltered, but how many hearts we have healed when it's time for us to bid farewell. So here we are. It's good to see so many faces. And hopefully we'll all make the most of today. So as we have a question, I'd like to start off with trying to help you work work that out. Venerable Sir, Theravan can you please explain the following? I understand when one applies the process of receiving, register, recognize, respond and perceive to the senses of taste, smell, sound, sight and touch We can understand that these Rupas are Vipaka. How can we apply the same process to Dhamma, thoughts, so that we see that they are also Vipaka? I had a situation where I had a conflict with a person that caused a lot of pain of mind to me. How can I use the above process? to train my mind so that these dhamma or thoughts are also perceived as vipak. Excellent. Wonderful question. You know, I I love questions like this. So practical. It speaks volumes when, you know, people actually come to us looking for answers to questions like this rather than Theoretical explanations and how this works, how that works, and we spend sometimes hours on trying to help them understand, but then they go away none the wiser. Because when there's nowhere to apply whatever you've learned, you know, it, it has a very short expiry date. You soon forget. What you don't apply, you soon forget. But questions like this, they're of tremendous benefit, not just to the person, whoever might have asked this, but also to all people. So with a question like this, I think we're going to have to jump into the uh, deep end, right at the beginning. Okay, So brace yourselves, fasten your seatbelts, and in the event that there's turbulence the oxygen masks will drop from overhead please make sure that put that you put your mask on first <laughs> before you do so for the person sat next to you yeah that's sound advice <clears throat> what we are trying to do is to understand our purpose here in this, in this existence. Why, is, why are things happening the way they are? how things work out the way they do, and just try and make sense of this world. And we've got to do something because we are already in existence, so we might as well understand what this existence is all about. So that man has tried to do since the dawn of time. And in his efforts to try and work out what's going on out there, man has been able to, or he has somehow managed to, split all events that happen on the outside into two or three categories. The things that make him happy, the things that make him sad, and the things that he's still not sure about. So the first category, we have the things that make us happy, we have affection towards them. The things that make us sad, we have affliction towards them. And then straddling affection and affliction, you have things which you're still on the fence, not sure what's going on. You're trying to work out which category do I put this in. And that is quite unsettling. It's always best to have to know where you stand on things. You know, as you say, I want to know where I stand. Hmm? These divisions, they somehow feel give us the feeling that it makes life livable because you want to know where you stand. Is it black or white? It's difficult to work with gray. Black or white? Very simple, straightforward. So whenever you come across a situation in life, you meet a stranger. Hmm? and you meet them for the first time, you have a ch- talk with, a chat with them. Inside, unbeknown to you perhaps, you're trying to work out which category, friend or foe, friend, foe, friend, foe. And then they'll say something. They'll say something, they'll give you a greeting in a nice way. Good morning to you. How are you? So nice to see you. And you think, ah, okay, so it must be, this is probably friend, more towards a friend type. And then you begin to associate that person in that manner. But sometimes, after a while, they start to say things that you don't expect to hear from a so-called good person, a friend. And then you slowly start shifting them on the spectrum from the friend to the foreside. Then you start shifting them to the foreside and then sometimes again something happens. Maybe they invite you for a, for a meal or for a dinner or something and then again you shift them back into the friend side. So really, you know, you're playing games with the people that you meet. Are they a friend or for you You're never quite sure, really. Things go wrong when you decide to finally bring them home and keep them with you for the rest of your life. Because then you you have to make a decision. But after you've made that decision, then it's sometimes a bit too late to go back on those decisions. That's why you have to trial and test thoroughly before you make such choices. Family, you really have no choice, but friends, you think you have a choice and then you try to put them into one of these two categories. So that's people, but then there are also other events that go on. For instance, if say you wash, you've done your laundry and they're out in the clothesline today, on the clothesline, and you're hoping it won't rain today. And now when you start to hear thunder and lightning, now you're wondering, oh, I hope it doesn't rain. I forgot to take the clothes in or they're out there. And then by the time I get calm, it's all going to be drenched. Now, again, you have even an event. You either put it in the good category, the affection category or the affliction category. Because there'll be others who will want it to rain. Like us, for instance, you're running out of water. In this place, you know, we don't usually get rain all year round, but we get you all year round. So on a good weekend, we have about a thousand of you coming in. Then there's about 200 of us, all human beings, need water. So you can imagine how much water we get through in the course of one week. So sometimes what we do is we cut down on our water usage to the bare minimum throughout the week so that we don't have to ask you to make sacrifices on a Saturday when you come in and we can have you, you know, use it freely. So there are times like that. But then there are other days when it rains cats and dogs and we have no no worries. But the thing is, when events happen in our lives, we feel that it has to be in one of these two categories, either affection or affliction. This is an innate behavior, a habit. The reason we do this is because The mind is always looking to identify with this situation and the mind needs to know how do I react in, this, in these situations. Because if it's a friend, then you recognize them as being a source of pleasure, a source of happiness, a source of well-being, right? And you look to have more of it. That is, sampayog. Uh, Association with what or who brings you happiness. And then you have the things and the people that bring you unhappiness, dissatisfaction, disappointments, frustrations. This is what the mind wants. Disassociate from those things and people who bring them dissatisfaction, disappointment, and associate with people who bring them happiness and satisfaction. <clears throat> so if that works out the way it does in both those situations the mind gets pleasure out of it Yeah, if the mind is successful if we, right, broadly speaking if we are successful in spending time associating people we like things we like that makes us happy and also if we are successful in distancing ourselves from the people or the things we don't like that also makes us happy, doesn't it? So you see, this is our, this is the battle that we go through and the reason, you know, say you, you're employed, you, you work, you, is because you can earn something that helps you to achieve this. You earn so that you can keep away things like starvation, hunger, hmm? Uh, the cold, the heat. yeah these things, and you can bring to you the things that you enjoy. Not only the people, but also sights, sounds, smells, you know, TV and food and night outs and all these things. So this is an inbuilt behavior. But it's now time for us to understand why we do this. So it's not just enough for us to say that's the way we do, that's the way we rock and roll. Because although that is what we do, Deep down inside, there's a problem that we keep on trying to address, but it never is addressed. Because this is just a superficial fight. Remember the two stories we talked about? There are two stories to this story. I mean story. Two stories to this building. And here we are talking about the top story. So how do we work this out so that We can remain happy regardless of what happens outside. Now, a very important point I want to make at this juncture. This question focuses on the perceived problem, which is where where we should start. Underlying, there's another problem. See, we're talking about what happens in in a conflict situation. I like the word disappointment. If, you, if you've ever wondered the, uh, the etymology of that word, it's where an appointment has been dissed. Yeah? So you've made an appointment with someone or something or an event, expectation, and that has been dissed, unfulfilled. So a conflict situation is where a disappointment has happened. Without us taking a moment to contemplate on that, what we'll generally do is point a finger out and say, you are the disappointment. You're identifying the thing that didn't go to whose plan? My plan. Where was it said or written that things have to go to your plan? Are you God? For all things to work out in your favor? for all things to work out according to your plan. In fact, aren't there times where you are quite happy that things didn't work out the way you planned? <laughs> Just think about it. Let's say for instance, right? You want to get somewhere on, at a particular time. Right? You want to get somewhere and to get there at that time, you have to leave home at sharp 2 p.m. Okay? But something happened and you were delayed. Because you were delayed, someone else came to you or you had a visitor, and they you you got to meet them, and then they said, "Oh, you know that place you're going to go it's useless there's There's going to be danger there, so you best not go. Do you know this this and this person's coming there, or such and such a thing is going to be happening there. It's going to be a disaster, so I suggest you don't go, and then you say. Thank heavens! I'm so glad that I met you. If I, if you'd been five minutes late, I would have left, and then I wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear you speak. Now, in those situations, you're happy that your expectation, your your desire to have left home at two, has been dissed. Because you, what, you know, what we do is we always, when things happen, we put them on scale, we put them on a scale, and now we try to weigh. Out which one works out better in our favor. Even when you have two situations which you are not in favor of, one is better off than the other. So what you do is you put them on the scale and you see which one works out better for you. When there are two reasons to be unhappy, one of them will be more sorrowful than the other. It's a bit like, you know, if someone someone gets to hear that, you know, they've, uh, say, failed an exam, okay? And then some other bad news comes and say that news is they've lost a loved one. Now, until that point, they were grieving the failure of that exam. And now you got to hear that someone has passed away. Now you forget all about that. And your focus is now on this. This is evidence ladies and gentlemen, that the mind is always looking for answers to vexations. Whatever vexes it it more, that is what the mind is always looking for release. Disappointments. You can't stop for as long as you make those appointments. Because only an appointment made can be an appointment dist. Now, it's great to see that in in this question, it is said that you are able to apply this to situations where we talk about sight, sound, smell, taste and so on. But what about the thoughts that we we have? There is never a sight that happens on its own. The complementary thoughts always follow. For instance, you see those flowers there? Sight in itself does not give you the full picture. Sight will simply tell you what color it is. It is your thoughts which take all those stimuli, all those points of data, analyze it, and come back that this is a flower, and it's appropriate for it to be there. That is why if you, if you perhaps saw a flower on the floor somewhere there, you'd pick it up, and maybe you'd leave it here, thinking that that's not the right place for it to be. But that is also a sight, and so is this. So sight in itself is simply an input into the thinking process. Sound, the same smell the same, what makes us us is the way we process them, is the way we think about the sights, sounds, smells, taste, and touch that come to us. Therefore, thought is king in all of this. Thought is king in all of this. Mano pubbhanga Mano setta mano The mind is great. The way we think about things, the way we perceive and process things, that is superior to all other things. You're here because of the way you think. You are your thoughts. If you studied yourself in the mirror, what you'll see is the result of your thoughts. The way you dress your hair, the way you dress, the way you do your makeup, these are all results of your thoughts, not sights, thoughts. What you use sight for is to make sure that your thoughts have been fulfilled. So a very good example of that is when you're in front of the dressing table doing your makeup, right? You already have a mental image of what you need to look like, right? And then until you achieve that, you make these changes. So sight helps you to achieve that aim. Does that make sense? Or when you're cooking, for instance, hmm? how do you know when it's enough salt? How do you know when it's enough spice? Hmm? Yeah, exactly. And, and why is it different from one person to the other? Because in our thoughts, we have a, perf- a picture of perfection. We have an image of what something needs to be like, what something needs to smell like, what something needs to look like. This is why you, ha- you wear perfume. This is why you have an air freshener. Because there's a, there you have an image of what your living room needs to smell like. That's why you have potpourri in the living room. Because you have an image of this is what my living room needs to smell like. This is what my bedroom needs to smell like. This is what my bed needs to look like. That's why you make your bed when you wake up. Sight does not do any of those things. Sight is simply a reporter. We report, you decide. Hopefully they they won't sue me for Mm -hmm. nicking that off them. Hmm? So your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue and your body, they're simply reporters of this is what's going on and they report them to the mind and basically for the mind to be checking with itself, are you happy with what's going on out there? These are your senses. It's like your dashboard, and this is how you know where you're going. That is all these this, this sense organs do, they, they are slaves, they are slaves to the mind. So this is why an untamed mind is very dangerous. An untamed man who has sight is far more dangerous than a blind man. Because a blind man is not able to make changes out there in the visual world to make it tally with his mental image. But a man who has sight but is untamed, meaning they have evil thoughts. Now he's able to make changes in the outside world to make it tick the boxes that he has within himself. That's dangerous. Why do people fight? Why do people take revenge? And when do they know to stop? When sight tells them, yeah, that's what I wanted. So behind all these sense doors... There is the king, that is the mind. The mind is superior, the mind above all. That is why I say, you are your thoughts. The way you are, what you do, the fact that you're here, this is all because of your thoughts. So, whenever there's a sight process, the sight process of again Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vijnana, whenever there's a, 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 a smell process or a smelling process of Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vijnana, a tasting process. Rupa Vedana, sankara vijnana A thought process always follows. Not one, usually three. But that's getting deeper than we need to. So let's take a step back. We don't need to be worried about how many. We just need to understand the concept. So, first things first. What you see here on your face. This, this, this. Body. And these things. They're simply Slaves to the mind. The Dhamma also enters through your ears or if you're reading it, it enters through your eyes. These are simply inputs. These are simply stimuli that then are taken, absorbed by the mind and then construed, perceived. The mind is what dips into the memory banks. Eyes don't do that. There's no connection between eye and memory. It's the mind that does that. It goes into memory, it tries to work out, what is it that I have just seen? That's the mind doing that. That's the mind doing that. What is it I've just heard? That's the mind doing that. And then after that, is this what I want to hear? Is this what I want to see? Who who do you think is doing that? That's also the mind. You know, in the Pali, there are two very specific terms for these sense organs. They're either referred to as the indriya, or a faculty, or they're referred to as an ayatana, an institute, or an institution. A faculty simply does the job of bringing in sensory stimuli. The, a faculty is only available in the, in, connected to the mind of an arahant. There is an arahant in each and every one of you. But when the mind goes into this zombie mode like we talked about last week and it gets hijacked, when it becomes a zombie, now it uses, it in fact manipulates, it not uses, it actually abuses the eyes, the ears, the tongue, tongue and the body, these five sense organs and now they are no longer faculties, they serve as institutions to serve the purpose of the mind. Slavery, at its best. Tell me there aren't times where you know it's bad for you to stay up watching TV, but you can't help it. (laughs) Hmm? I'm guilty of that. I remember there were times when, you know, the latest movies had come out, hmm? and I know I have to get to bed. I know I have work the following day, Uh, or maybe their friends have come over. Then what do you do? You sit down and you watch. Sometimes we binge watch. I was a movie fanatic back then. And you just keep on watching, one after the other, one after the other. And sometimes it's, you've got to really now sh- shut down and, and go to bed. And you know the doctor said, you know, it's not good for your eyes, you, for you to strain your eyes. Another bad habit some people have is, you know, when they get to bed, They'll say I'm setting my alarm, but that's usually not the only thing that happens. You get the phone out, then up comes Facebook, up comes Instagram, comes this, comes that, and then before you know it, you're just browsing through that, right? And you are due to get to bed, due to fall asleep an hour ago, and two hours later, you're still on your phone. That is not the I that wants that. It's not the I that wants that. The eye has become a slave. So much so now that the eye is suffering. Aren't there times when you know something that is put down on a plate in front of you is bad for you, but you still have it nonetheless? When you know the doctor said, uh huh, any more cholesterol, and your days are numbered? Or when the doctor said, no, that's too much sugar, you shouldn't be having that. You've got to be counting your calories, lady. You've got to be counting your calories, young man, said the doctor. Hmm? But what happens? They say, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. I disagree. The flesh is willing, but the mind is weak. You know, if you really just gave the body its own voice, okay, you would be in serious conflict (laughs) all the time. Think about it. If you gave your body its own voice, right? imagine your mouth had two connectors, one to your mind and one from the body. So if, you know you can take turns. Who speaks? Uh, imagine going to a buffet. What it's going to be like. Uh, it'll be a mm-hmm. war zone. <laughs> At one point you'll, be, you'll, you'll hear, Yeah, can I have a bit of that please? And then again the same voice will be saying, Get out of there. What are you doing? That will be the body speaking. You already had three dishfuls of that. That's deep fried. What the heck are you doing? It's not good for you. And then you go to the fountain. Chocolate fountain. Hmm? With your marshmallows and your strawberries. Yeah. Ah, You know the drill. Hmm? So your mind is going. Yeah. I'll have 15 of them please. Now, if your body had a voice of its own, imagine if your body was able to control your arms, you'd be slapping yourself left, right, and center. Wouldn't you? Yeah. So anytime you have to go to the doctor, right, and you get your blood tests and you see that high cholesterol... hmm? High LDLs and high VLDLs and high triglycerides and all these things, right? high sugar, all these things. Who is it to blame? Ice? Yes? Tongue? Hmm? You think you're trying to please your tongue by eating all that? No. The tongue has just one job. Sweet, 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 sour, 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 bitter, 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 sweet, sweet, sour, sour, bitter, bitter, bitter. That's all the tongue does. You've never tasted sausage. Your tongue hasn't. Your mind has tasted sausage. Your tongue can only taste those five things. Sweet, sour, bitter, salt. Hmm? Any more? Have I missed one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Umama. Umama? Umama. Umami. Umami. eh? Yeah, umami. Yeah, we talked about that, didn't we? Fancy word, that. <laughs> so anyhow, so this is all the the the, the tongue can taste. So everything you've done to yourself, hmm, both good and bad, your sense organs can't take credit for them, and neither can they take blame for it. So really, when you ask the question, how do we apply this to thoughts, you you've already answered that question yourself. You already know it. I'm just trying to present to you that you already know what you're asking. Because if ever you've managed to do it for sight, sound, smell, taste and touch, the same applies for thoughts because really what you're applying this is to the thoughts. I'll take another example. Let's let's walk through it. Okay? And uh, let's take one of these. So, a situation where there was a conflict with a person and that caused... uh, a lot of pain. <clears throat> now before I go to that. I'll take a, a, another simple example. And I'll, we'll come to that after. So say. Um, say a taste. That, or a sight that you didn't like. Okay. There can never be something that you don't like. If there isn't something that you like. It's always two sides of the same coin. There can never be affliction where there is no affection. That's why the other day, I, I don't know if you remember, I, I had to say, you know, love is as bad as hate. Love is as vulgar as hate, all things considered. I'm not talking about the love of a noble one, which is loving kindness, but love is as vulgar as hate, because both things are equally disastrous. What is love if not The feeling that one gets when they get what they want from the other person. It's what you use for trade. I love you because you love me. You can't be saying, I love you, regardless. That is not true. Love is a two-way street. You give it because you get it. Which is very different to noble love. Which is giving with no expectations in return. That is why I say love is as bad or as vulgar as hate so imagine there's a site that you dislike okay something maybe there are lots of sites you could think of you know your kitten hmm? your pet cat has done the dirty in the living room but you look at it, oh God, not again so you don't like it. That is because you want the opposite of that. You want it not to do that. Whenever you have these moments of conflict, okay, with any of these five senses, pause for a second and find out what is it that you wanted. What you've got what you've gotten is what you didn't want. In the didn't want, do you not see the problem? Want. Hmm? Whenever there is something that comes to you and you're not happy with it, it's because You expected something else to make you happy. This is Buddhism 101. Always trying to find the problem within. You see, because if ever you were to say that this is, this, you know, I don't like the color blue. I don't like this. It's ugly. Look at it. Look at all that blueness. Okay, then you ask, okay, what makes you happy? I like this. That's nice. Whenever you find yourself saying you don't like something, the next question will answer, why? If you don't like this, it's because you like that. There is nothing in this world that you don't like without a complementary thing that you do like. If, for example, now let's let's move into the uh, parameters of this question here. Let's say... Let's, let's actually start to think about some of the things that you know, might cause you conflict that people say. right? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few. You can also think of some. Okay? So one could be a false accusation. We talked about this in one of those weeks. A false accusation. Something you've never done. You didn't even think of doing it. But you were accused of doing it. A false accusation. It could be a lie. Hmm? People don't like to be lied to. right? Maybe you got cheated on by someone. Which is again a lie. Or maybe someone um, mocked you. Maybe it was a, a physical feature about yourself. Hmm? Maybe someone said, hey, fatso. Huh? Or someone said, hey, granny. And you didn't like that. Hmm? Or, oh, hey, chand- chaminda. <laughs> hmm? And you didn't like that. Hmm? Or maybe, you know, I'm not going to say the word out loud, but there are offensive words that get thrown out, right? Racial slurs and things like that. Yeah, I'm not going to say those words out loud. Whenever you hear something, usually it's either hearing or seeing, right? These are the two ways in which you get into conflict with someone. Okay? Whenever this happens... Take a moment to ask yourself, isn't there a complimentary thing that I do like? If someone insults you, rightly or wrongly, inside you, there's a desire not to be insulted, isn't there? Hmm? I'll, I'll, I'll walk through why you have that in a moment. Okay, but first let's understand the premise of this problem. If someone insults you, you have a desire not to be insulted. Yes or no? Yeah. If, you, if someone lies to you, you have a desire not to be lied to and for people to be truthful to you. If someone cheats you or cheats on you, then you have a desire not to be cheated on and to be faithful. Yeah. If someone mocks you and maybe they make fun of you about a physical attribute, you don't like to be treated that way. <laughs> You, you you want people to either be sympathetic towards you, or you want people to you know not identify that as your as your weak point. Because we do, we feel that whenever someone spots something a weakness within us, that it is a reflection of our identity. Some people get upset even if their names get mispronounced, or their titles get mispronounced. People get offended by that. I've seen doctors if when they're addressed Mister, they get annoyed because their doctorness has become an, a part of their identity. I've seen people who get offended if they are identified as being of a different race. I've seen people who get offended if they're identified as a different gender. Huh? They say there's a gentleman in the audience and maybe he's got long hair. Imagine if I said uh, the lady at the back. Oh you're talking lady. What part of me is lady? <laughs> they'll they'll ask. They may, they might, right? Because they, they, they don't like that. They they want, they don't want to be identified as someone that they that they don't identify themselves with. They can get offended. And to not offend people, you know, there are lots of you know what we call manners and politeness in society. That is where all of this comes from. You don't need to be polite in front of an arahant because you can't offend them. <laughs> You can't be rude to an arahant. You can't, because they're not offended. I mean, you can be rude intentionally, but they won't feel that you are being rude to them. It won't hurt them. Why do you think we have so many, you know, this all this uh, diplomaticness and all this being very politically correct, right? And being very sensitive to people's identities, you know, their gender, their race. Uh, their, their size and their physical attributes, all of this diplomatic uh, di- diplomacy, all of this is necessary because people are very easily offended because they identify themselves as someone. And when that identity is threatened, what is the most precious thing to someone? Their car, their house, their land or their children? Their themselves, their identity. Their very identity is threatened when someone upsets them. Say you, you think you're a good mother. Okay? Your child has done something mischievous, gotten up to some mischievousness and uh, found out by next door neighbor. Maybe, you know, they were playing or maybe, you know, doing something and next door neighbor found out. And now he comes over and says, hey, you. Is this the way you bring up your children? Hmm? Even we can't be here now with children like this. Why don't you teach them some manners? Look at what they've done. Don't you know how to bring up your children properly? And then they accuse you, right? You know who gets insulted? Not you. The mother within you. That's who gets insulted. The mother within you gets insulted. The father within you gets insulted. That's who gets insulted. Let's say you are an officer. Hmm? So you you have you you have a uniform. You are maybe a police officer or an army officer. okay, in the forces. And someone doesn't salute you. Maybe a junior officer. You get offended. You can get offended. Hey. Do you know who I am? Have you not heard people say that? Don't you know who I am? I love that question because I have a ready-made answer for that. Do you? (laughs) How many times have you heard people say this? Perhaps even you might, yourself might have said this on one or two occasions. Don't you know who I am? Who do you think I am? Why do you talk to me like this? When you say, why do you talk to me like this? It is because there is an identity within yourself that has felt that pain, that has been offended. So the only way then, folks, for you to free yourself from this problem is to identify that, that, that personality. You know, we talk about dual personalities, you know, the dual personality disorder and so on. How many personalities do you think you have? Uh, at home, exactly. At home, you're a mother or you're a father. Okay, In your family, you're a brother or a sister. Huh? Sometimes you're the elder sister. Uh, that, that's another elevation. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm the elder sister. right? So you don't talk to me like that. You don't give me advice. I give you advice. Right? Come on, worship now. <laughs> I used to be like that. But I was the elder brother mm, in, in my family. And I, I didn't like it that my brother didn't worship me for New Year. <laughs> so I used to go and complain to Amma. <laughs> how come when all the adults in the house have, have get worshipped you know, for New Year, how come Mali doesn't worship me? <laughs> how silly. Because there was an ayah in my mind. I identified myself as the ayah, as the elder brother. See, try and spot these... Individuals that lie inside your mind, these are all creations of, your own, of, of yourself. This is a fantasy land that you have created in your mind. All these characters, you are the director. You write the script and they play it out. Shakespeare's, all of you. <laughs> and indeed, the problem is ultimately, you know, it is to be or not to be. <laughs> That is the question. So true. Right now, you are. You have decided to be. To be someone. These problems, these conflicts, ladies and gentlemen, is typical when you feel that you are someone. Identify that problem. At the workplace, you have a certain title. You have a certain seniority at the the workplace. right? You are this person's senior and you are that person's junior. So there's a way your junior should work with you. There's a way that your peers can work with you. And there's a way that your boss can work with you. right? There are some things that your boss can say and get away with it. But not your juniors. Yes or no? Yeah. There are some things that your peers can say and get away with it, but not your juniors. There are some things. That the person sat next to you can, but the person who cleans the place, oh, they can't say that. The janitor can't say certain things. Start identifying those individuals, because we are going to go on mass murder. That is what we need to do. Mass murder. Genocide. (laughs) There are a lot of people that live within you that you need to kill before you are allowed to die. You can't die for as long as these people, these personalities live within you. Because it is they that keep you alive. I hope you understand the profoundness of what I am saying right now. There are so many individuals that live inside this one mind that stop you from dying. You're not free to die. And Arahant is free to die because there's no one that, he, that keeps him alive. It is just the Vipaka. A mother, the identity of a mother is not a Vipaka. But the mother itself is a Vipaka. That is a creation of nature. That is why, whether you believe you're a mother or not, if, You know, if you are murdered by your child, right? then whether the child knows it or not, that is a heinous sin. For that, neither the child nor the mother needs to know their relationship to one another. That is vipaka. But that does not explain why you shed tears when something happens to the child. That does not explain why the child should cry when the mother should die. That is because in the mind of the child there lives a child, and in the, in the mind of the child, there lives a mother. And in the mind of the mother, there lives a mother. And in the mind of the mother, there lives a child, therefore. Try and see if you can identify all these personalities that live within you. Hmm? Work through the week. On a Monday, what are the roles that you play? Think about it for a second. Hmm? Today's Monday, let's say. What are the personalities that you, that you go through? This is multiple personality disorder. <laughs> no, I tell you, what else is multiple personality disorder? Um, some of us Swami nurses, they do psychology, right? To understand how psychologists understand the world so that we can help them one day, right? So the other day, one of our Swami who does this, came to me and said, uh, Swami nurses, I, we, today we learned that there's there's been a case of multiple personality disorder where this person identifies 22 different personalities within themselves. So they, they take, up, take up those roles at those times. So at one point, they're Christopher. Another point, they're uh, Lucy. And when they're Christopher, they'll act and behave like a man. And when they're Lucy, they'll act and behave like a, like a lady. So maybe to not, not to that extent... But inside each and every one of you, there are personalities. You weren't a mother until your child was born, right? See? So who created that then? You did. You weren't a friend until you found that friend, right? Look at all those relations. Now take something that is not really physically, you know, you can't explain physically, like say a partner, a husband-wife relationship. You know, where is the vipaka in that? It's not biological. It's completely conceptual. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I use that example of a partner or a husband or a wife relationship because you understand that it is entirely conceptual. There's nothing biological about that. Mother, child, okay, biology. Right? But father, child, okay, again, biology. You've got the same genes, let's say. But... You know, when his husband, wife, when his partners, boyfriend, girlfriend. Where are those? There are, there are no biological connections. They're all conceptual connections. Meaning, you create that within your mind. And then you project that to the outside world. Your eyes, sight, only help you facilitate that, that process inside. This is why I said, behind every sight process, there is a mental process that brings, that, that, that causes havoc, that completely ruins the peace, calm and serenity that you all have deep within. An arahant lives within each and every one of you. Remember, an arahant is not a someone. That is the difference. You know I say, an arahant lives within you. An arahant is not an identity. It is where all identity has been dis- disintegrated. An arahant is simply nature. That is an arahant. That is why I say, see, this is an arahant. The only reason you don't call this an arahant is because this is simply rupa. There is no vedana, Sanya, sankara and vinyana. But rupa are, you know, on, on, on the same scale, rupa is as qualified to be referred to as an arahant as vedana and Vedana is as qualified to be referred to as Narahant, as Sanya and Sankara and Vinyana. They're equal. They serve different purposes indeed. Receiving serves a different purpose to recognition. Recognition serves a different purpose to response. And response serves a different purpose to uh, perception. Granted. Right? But they're all equal. Nothing is more valuable than the other. So much so that they're actually inseparable. They're all part of the same energy. It's all one. It is the mind itself that takes, absorbs this rupa and then tries to construe that, interpret that rupa as Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana. Without the mind, it would simply just be rupa. Let's stay for a second. We were able to pause all minds, all you have is rupa. So, what does the mind do? The mind is a, a minding process. We talked about this, isn't it? didn't we? If Mind is not a thing. It's a process. The process of interpreting rupa. That is what the mind is. I mean, there you go. There's a good, good definition of the mind. If someone asks you, what is the mind? It is the process that is used to interpret rupa. Without the rupa, there is no mind. Even in the arupa, there are still very, very fine and very subtle rupa. The mind is the process of interpreting Rupa. So what is Nibbana then? When you have stopped that process. I'm talking about Anupadi Sesa Nibbana. Not the Sopadi Sesa Nibbana. Because there are two types of Nibbana, right? As in two stages. One is where you become an arahant. Then all you do is the interpretation of Rupa. That's it. As Vedana Sanya Sankara and Vijnana. When that also stops, that is the anupadisesa nibbana, which is the passing away of an arahant. The Buddha was a Buddha for 45 years. He had already attained sopadisesa nibbana. When he passed away on one Vesak full moon Poya day, that was his anupadisesa nibbana. That is the passing away of the aggregates, meaning the vedana, sanya, sankhar, and the vinnana process stops. We don't need to worry about that part. That we leave to, you know, whatever process that stops, whenever that stops, let it stop. We are not worried about that. What we are worried about is this misinterpretation of rupa. That is what causes suffering. Sankiten, panchupadana, khanda, dukkha, I'll put it in lay terms, misinterpretation of rupa leads to suffering. There you go, in simple terms misinterpretation, misinterpretation because of ignorance. Whenever there is ignorance, there is attachment. And when ignorance and attachment come into the picture, now there is only one way that can be interpreted and that is miss. Misinterpretation of Rupa. What Rupa? Rupa Rupa. Sabda Rupa, Gandha Rupa, Rasa Rupa, Rupa and Dhamma Rupa. I'll take another example of this Dhamma Rupa. Say you are reminded of something that happened yesterday. Oh, good example. Let's say a loved one passes away. Okay? The funeral, you had the funeral and they were cremated three months ago. Excuse me. I don't, I, I, I didn't know about this. So, I ask you, Sir, how is your mother? I haven't seen her for a long time. (laughs) Sorry, did I upset you, sir? My my mother passed away three months ago. Okay, why are you crying now then? (laughs) How did that happen? Let's talk through how that happened. Yeah. See this voice my, the 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 voice that I projected these are just sounds okay it's like this it's just a sound how do you know this is a knock is that your your ears telling you that that's a knock no that's your mind perceiving it as a knock that's why unless until until and unless you learn that it is a knock you don't know that yeah that's why this is not a knock That's not a knock to you. To you, a knock is, whenever you go to someone's door, how do you knock? There's that pattern, right? Usually it's three knocks. That's how we perceive a knock. You don't go. You don't do that. Because that's how you perceive a knock. So, when I asked you that question, this is sound projected, words are created in your own mind, because you understand the language and understanding of language is how you connect different sounds. See, really, I mean this is a wonderful discussion and I really hope you are tuned into this, right? I'm, I'm saying these words out loud and I make some other noises. Can you hear these noises as well as hear what I'm saying? How do you know that what is coming from here are the words and these are not the words? Because you go into memory. Where you have data, you bring that data back, and you are able to filter words from background noise, ambient noise. That's why you can still hear me saying this, despite the noise that's coming from the air conditioners. Now, you know, someone dropped something there. You know that that was not part of the speech. It's when the background noise gets too much. Now, when you can't interpret what is being said, that's when you say, hey, can you turn down the noise a bit? I can't hear what this person's saying. Let's say you're in a construction site and someone's trying to say something to you and there's a lot of noise going around you, right? Or maybe you're in a noisy classroom or a busy environment. You say, it's just too, no- too loud. Shall we go somewhere and talk? Because I, I, what, what I'm really saying is, I can't work out which noises are the words and which noises or which sounds are just noise. So when I ask that question, I haven't seen your mother for a while, those are just words and the, the, the hearing process simply served that purpose of capturing sound. The, eye, the ear can only capture sound. It does not capture a specific language. You can't train your ear to spanish or english or hindi or gujarati or malayalam you can't train your ear for that you train your mind for that you can't train your ear to music although that is what we say you know played by ear you're not playing by ear then a dead person can play as well they've also got a ear but what they don't have is the mind that perceives what comes in through the ear so the ear only captures sound sound is interpreted in the mind How does the mind do that? The mind has patterns in its memory. That is what we learn when we learn things, patterns. How do you know it's left foot after the right foot? Pattern. How do you know how to eat? It's a pattern that you learn. That's what your parents teach you at a young age. You know, a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of this and a bit of that, mix it all together and in it goes. That's a pattern. That's why you don't eat all the malum first and then all the parippu and then all the, you know, the soya and then all the rice at the end. You don't do that. You don't do that because that is not the pattern that you have learned. So where is that pattern that is acquired, acquired and it's in memory? That is why if you lose your memory, now you don't know, you wouldn't know how to eat. You wouldn't know how to tie your shoelaces, but the eye will still perform as an eye. The eye will still show you the rice, it'll show you the lace, it'll show you the the the, the flow, it'll show you the, the the mat. But you wouldn't know how to walk. You'd have to relearn it. So what goes into memory, what goes in and dips into memory to bring it back? This is the mind process. The minding process, the Dhamma. So I asked the gentleman, haven't seen your mother in a while. What's going on? Now those words uh, were interpreted. Mother was identified. And this mother is a very sensitive topic now. Because, so let's, let's, let's talk through what happens. Before mother passed away, right? This, this person identified himself as child. That we do you know, right from the start when you're informed this is your mother. Right? We have to learn who our mother is really. That's how it works. You know, we don't have an instinct to find out who our mother is. An Instinct is not something, you know, typically in that, in that uh, area, we don't have an instinct. We don't have an instinct to identify our mother. It doesn't work like that. That is why a child has to be held in, its, in, in the mother's arms and, and fed. Right? That is why sometimes you can, you know, in case of you know, misidentity, you could think that someone else is your mother. So it's not instinct there. You had to be taught who your mother is. You had to be taught who your father is. Right. So anyhow, the moment you're taught that this person is your mother, <laughs> and this is also why, you know, an adopted child can be taught to think that this is the mother. Someone else, you know, someone who is not your biological mother can still be taught to the child as their mother. And then as the moment you think that this is my mother, now they become a child. That identity is formed and the mother identity is formed. And now these two people, they live within this person's mind. So that happened. Okay? Now, because they have identified this mother and a mother is someone that the child sees as someone who is, whose uh, whose association is pleasurable and someone who they like, who they, who they wish to be with, who they love. They only want things that they believe are good to happen to the mother. Hmm? They only want good things to happen to the mother. And... In our mind, somewhere, growing up, we have always been—we have always been taught that death is a bad thing. Yeah, that's what we learn growing up. So that's why you know we've seen people cry at funerals. So we are, why do people cry? Because they have lost their mother. Ah, so when the mother dies, you have to cry, is it? Okay. So we've learned that death is a bad thing, and we should grieve when death happens. And it's the loss of, you know, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste that you would have gotten from an alive mother you can no longer get. Remember, these are slaves. Now you send the slaves out, go and get mother for me and you can't reach mother now because mother is dead. So the slaves come back and say, sorry, access denied. (laughs) Then the mind goes, what? But I want it, try again, goes out. Comes back, no access denied. When did when did this happen? When you first found out mother was dead, Amma, Amma, wake up, Amma, 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 wake up, please, please, Amma, please wake up, Amma, please. Hmm? What's happening here? Slaves, go out, get mother. No, no mother. Try again. Please get mother. No mother. Please, please, please try again. No mother, no mother. Now what's happening? The mind is. Has enslaved these sense these sense organs, and I've said, "Please go and fetch for me what I need. I'm I'm burning here. I want this." And they come back saying, "Sorry, access denied." Now, the mind is unable to any longer fulfill this desire to be with this living mother, because no longer do you get. All the things that you associated with mother, like affection, loving words, her feeding you, patting your head, putting you know, keeping her on your on your on your lap, right? You can't get any of those things anymore. Those were the things that you wanted from mother. You're not getting them anymore. See, those were the expectations and they're no longer being fulfilled. Because I am the son and she's the mother. It is only from a mother you expect this because that is what we have come to learn. From a mother we expect certain things. From the father we expect certain things. From the wife we expect certain things. From the husband we expect certain things. From a brother, sister and so on we expect different things. So expecting these things. We go out to fetch them but nothing comes back. And all we have is disappointments. Appointments. dist. Appointments dissed. And when appointments are dissed. That is a. A grave cause for concern and grievance. This is only happening because you identify yourself as the child and the other person, the mother. So when this happened three months ago, the funeral, the cremation and all that, three months ago, why is the mind crying about it now? Let's say it was fair to cry at the moment when it happened, but why now? This is because when you heard that me speak about it, your mind interpreted the word "mother," and the moment "mother" came to mind, all those loving memories of her started flooding the heart or the mind and Now you are once again reminded that these are the things that made you happy see this is this is This is a really good point, folks to understand that what makes you happy is, is not a not a constant thing. It's whatever it is at the moment, in the moment. When you're grieving about something, don't you try and focus on something else? Hmm, think about it. Like maybe you know that's what that's what you do as friends, isn't it? If someone's grieving about something, you go and spend some time with them. And you talk about other things. You know, you say let's not let's not you know talk about this. Let's talk about something else. Why don't we talk about something else? Shall we go out for a walk? You you try try and pacify them. How do you do so? You try and focus their mind on something else. In fact, what you're doing is you're trying to bring them different kinds of stimuli. The fact that you can do that and make them forget their grief means that the mind is not a fixed thing and the different identities are born as and when. Otherwise, how could you forget you know, why is it that you're not crying about your dead mother now, three years on, but you did back then? Because ever since that happened, other things have been happening in your life and your focus has changed. But a thought of the dead mother can once again bring that grief to some people. Some people will cry maybe three, four, five years on. Others, it'll, you know, they'll get over it in a, in a day. you know, it's always it's different things they take center stage in your life. Whatever the vexation is, the mind is simply looking for relief from that vexation. That is what I want you to identify here. And understand. When the mind looks for that connection, that relationship, it's really looking for something to give it pleasure. Now, I want you to take a very crude look, look at the mind here. Okay, this might sound like very emotionless, it might sound very raw, right, and very crude but I want you to take that crude and analytical view, you know, for the duration of this, this talk. Look at your mind as if it was a specimen that you could put on the table and look at it from the outside. Take your mind out, place it there and now look at it. If the mind was minding its own business, right, it would not identify itself as a child or a husband, or a wife, or a mother, or anything like that. But this is a force, this is a power, this is an energy that has learned to do something called distinguishing. Distinguish itself from others. Separation. Dying for this separation, it has identified itself as a separate entity to everything else. Otherwise, really, what are you? You are simply energies. You know, like a light bulb. You know, if this bulb goes out, we can replace it with another light bulb and it will work just fine, won't it? Yeah? You know, you are all just the same. We are all just the same. These are simply manifestations of vipaka. Your mind is simply a, uh, a process whose job is simply to process rupa, interpret rupa. That's all it is. But going beyond that, What it has done is, because of ignorance, that is a wrong view, it identifies itself as a separate entity from all other things and from all other people and from all other beings. Once you are there, everyone else is there. That's how you have a world around you. So how is it then, coming back to the question, that someone can say something to you that upsets you? The answer is in the question. Yeah, Mm. because your identity is threatened. What you hold as true, what you hold as valuable to you, this is all threatened. If you are lied to and it hurts you, it's because you believe that you are someone who shouldn't be lied to. Imagine you had to use a lie detector on someone. It was your job to detect if someone was lying, okay? Say you're working at the police station or somewhere, FBI, and you're using a lie detector on someone. It's your job to catch them out. Now, when would you be happy? You're in that job to catch people lying. So if no one's lying, what's going to happen next? You'll be out of a job. So you'll be quite happy when people like, I got you. (laughs) So, and your bonus was determined by how many liars you catch. <laughs> huh? You're in a job because people lie. If you're a lie detector, oh, that's your profession, right? So you hold that machine to someone and you detect that they're lying. There you go. Someone's lied. Now you're happy that someone's lying. You're asking the questions. You're interrogating them and they're giving you false answers. <laughs> you're over the moon that they're lying to you because every time they lie, it's marking on that this is a lie. That's because now your identity is that of a lie detector. Now you are happy that people are lying and you are catching them out. If you are a cop, and you know, you would be out of business if there weren't any criminals. But when roles are switched, you are the criminal, now you don't want a cop. It all boils down to what is it that gives you this sense of pleasure? If someone offends you, usually a false accusation. These are very, you know, we feel they are very offensive, a false accusation. Particularly if it's done in front of a crowd, Hmm? or maybe it's done in an email and everyone's copied in, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) isn't it? And someone's accusing you of something, you know, then you start to boil inside. And usually, what will happen is email tennis. Yeah, that is the. This is the reaction you will feel like, right, I have to respond to that email so that everyone else, yeah, to justify why I did that. Otherwise, people are going to start thinking that, you know, I'm like this, like that, and the other. So I better reply to this and make it stern. So that they, I teach them a lesson. And usually what happens in the end? One thing turns to another, and, you know, it's a complete disaster. This is because you have a burning desire... To vindicate your soul. To prove to others that you are flawless. Who is flawless? You are flawless. You have this desire to to prove to others that you are flawless. Even when you know that perhaps you are guilty. You don't like others finding out about it. Sometimes, you know, there will be times when you have done something wrong. Why do people lie? They don't want others finding out about it. If someone finds out that you've done something wrong, right? You don't want it going on the tabloids, do you? You don't want it going on the, uh, you know, the morning email digest that comes in the morning. It comes in the morning at work. You don't want it there. You don't want your neighbors finding out about it. You don't want your your friends finding out about it. You don't want it going on Facebook. You don't want it going on the news. You want to keep it hush, because you know that if someone finds out. If someone finds out, then my identity will be threatened. This is the thing that you guard the most. You have watched Guardians of the Galaxy? That was a movie franchise. Hmm? You are all guardians. You are all guardians. Your galaxy is that identity. There is nothing that we treasure more than that. You know, this defines our very being. How can there be anything more precious than that? Who you have come to know as yourself, you know, the reputation that you have built from a young age, maybe you know, making sure that you did all the right things and making sure that you didn't get into the wrong kind of association, you know, distancing yourself from evil friends, bad friends, and all that. Huh? Let's take another, uh, say for instance, say you've just been widowed. Okay, your husband's passed away. Someone says that you're having another, uh, maybe a connection with somebody. Hmm? You have uh, an affair with someone. Now that can be very offensive, can't it? Because you'll want to say, hang on a second. I've lived my life being faithful to one man and one man only. How dare you accuse me of something like that? What is being offended right now? Indeed. That faithful wife personality within you? She's being offended. Not you. Take that out. Yeah. (laughs) Now you don't have a problem. See, you're always trying to rescue yourself. Hmm? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. What a great question. We should all be grateful for a wonderful question. <laughs> That's why I say whenever you ask a question ask it on behalf of everyone. Because then it's meritorious to ask the question itself. It's pure merit just to put that question on paper. As I always say even if you have a personal question if you can generalize it and ask it and, and so that it benefits everyone there's merit to be gained by doing that. So it's, otherwise it's a missed opportunity. Identify those roles within yourselves, folks. Because among you, there will be widows. Among you, there will be mothers who've lost their children. And if you are asked about your lost child, and it you know, shirks a tear from your eye, that's because there's still a mother that lives within you, even though your child has dead, is dead. Child died, you're still a mother. The mother was born when the child was born. Then surely, shouldn't the mother die when the child is dead? (laughs) See? But the child dies and the mother lives on. Why? To do nothing else than suffer. No longer can you get the things that you wanted from your child. Hmm? Not not his or her sights, no sounds, no smell, no her touch. Right? So you can't get any of those things that you wanted to get from the child. So the only thing that remains is as a mother you can continue to suffer. Duty is another. When a loved one passes away, you know, you do your, at the end of a week, you do at the end of the three months, right, the months of Pingkang and so on, right, and the, the yearly uh, Pingkang and so on. That is all duty. Duty is one. But this mother that lives within you suffers until your end until no really until you forget that you are the mother see although you cry and you weep for a lost one in this birth you have forgotten completely about all the people that you passed away in your last birth right when do you mourn them never which one's greater in number the number of children you have lost in the past, in your previous births, or the number of children you've lost in this life? <laughs> it's the, the ratio is infinity to one. But who do you moan? This one. Why? Because you still think you are the mother. That mother figure still lives on. That mother personality. Try and spot those personalities within yourselves. This multiple personality disorder that we are all suffering from. Hmm? You want to live a respectable life. Hmm? Maybe based on that you chose where you want to live as well. Hmm? The the you know which part of the city, which part of the country, which part of the town you want to live. There'll be certain places you will not want to live, you will not even want to go that way. That's okay if you want to you know dissociate yourself from evilness, you know, bad qualities, bad attributes, because the you are the average of the five people you associate. Right? That is granted. But if you feel that you are offended by by being seen with a certain kind of people, now that is another problem because inside you is another personality that demands respect. That is why it might be that, you know, some people like to go and, you know, take pictures with, uh, what do you call them? You know, celebrities. Yeah. Because you want to be seen with a celebrity. (laughs) That's another identity. (laughs) Why do people go to Madame Tussauds when they visit London? Hmm? I mean, that's just a bit of clay, right? Yeah? That's just a, you know a plastic or whatever. It's just it's just a, it's just a bunch of stuff. It's not even a real person there. But people buy tickets. They stand in queues sometimes for many hours at a stretch. And then they'll go in there standing beside these celebrities and taking pictures and then posting them on on, on social media. See how fanatical people are? This is not an accusation to anyone. So anyone listening to this who's got, you know, we went last weekend. (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, think about why we do these things, why we stoop to that level. Because you like to be seen with famous people. That's because you, you like fame. You like glory. Identify these personalities within you. It's only after you've killed all of them can you die. Until then you are born and reborn, and reborn, and reborn. You know, people ask me, what evidence do you have, Swami Nuhansa, that there is rebirth? Well, there you go then. You're not ready to die because there are so many personalities that live within you. They want to exist. They want to survive. And their survival instincts will kick in when this body breaks. And then one of them will be reborn. One of them will take form. One of those personalities will take form. If it's the deva personality, that will take form. But even in that deva, there will be other personalities. Because you can have a deva who is the leader of a clan of devas. There's a deva who can be, you know, the almighty deva. There's a deva who can be, you know, the the, the ruler of a certain part of the, uh, the universe or whatever. These are all personalities that even a deva has, like we people have. They're all, you know, we have personalities. There are politician personalities. There are teacher personalities. You know, there are uh, other professions. There are, they're all personalities. So you are, at the most basic level, a human personality. But in addition to that, there are these auxiliary personalities that you also have to sustain and maintain. They are all identities that the mind has created. It makes life livable. Yeah, yeah. These are the bhava that we create. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Nonosa bhava, deva bhava and so on. Because it, when, he, when, when it comes to that stage of bhava, that releases the energy to create another vipaka, which at some point manifests. And you take that shape. Not you take that shape, but you know, that shape is taken. And then the mind continues this journey. As a teacher, for instance, you know, when you're in the classroom, as a teacher, you will expect a certain kind of behavior from your students towards yourself. You'll expect your students to talk to you in a certain way. You'll expect your students to respect you, to regard you in a certain way. I've seen across cultures, it is also very different. When I first went to school in the UK, when my teacher walked into the class, I stood up. And I stood up like a lemon. Everyone else was sitting down. I wondered what's going on here. But that was the culture that I was used to. But there was one child in the room who had their feet up on the table. I was like, what the heck is he doing? And he's looking at me, I was like, what the heck is he doing? (laughs) Because in that culture, that is not what a teacher expects. So that teacher personality expects something different. You know, these are all shades, different shades, different varieties. This is what makes this world so diverse. So many different personalities live within each and every one of us. In some of you, there may be a millionaire. This millionaire is born before you become a millionaire. Now what your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your nose and your body does is help you to confirm, to affirm that you have now achieved that. How do you know that you are a millionaire? You go into your bank, you ask, how much money do I have in there? You've got a million. Ah, thank you. I'm a millionaire. That millionaire was born before you... Before, you know, it was confirmed that you were, you were a millionaire. That personality, the personality comes first. And then you, it, life becomes a pursuit to fulfill that ambition. That's why at a young age, you know, children are expected to have an ambition, right? At a young age, you know, teachers, parents, they ask you, "Puta, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are parents doing, really? They are building that personality within that child's mind. So right now, they're only a child. But in the mind, they build another personality. No, but oh, you've got to be someone like a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, you know, a teacher. So, you know, you've got to become someone. Who is that someone you want to become? So they create that personality within the child's mind, and then once that that personality has been created, now they try to enact that. It's like when you thought you were Superman. Remember, after you watched the Superman movie, or when you watched Jet Li, it was very difficult to walk straight on the road after that, wasn't it? Every time you throw a a staff or a stick or somewhere on the ground, you had to pick it up and try and, you know, use it as a (laughs) non-chuckle. And whenever you would jump from a height, you go, wah! (laughs) You couldn't stop yourself from doing that. Because that personality was born. There are so many different personalities that live within you. Each of these are a projection of your desires. This is ignorance. This is a manifestation of ignorance. Because you have given value to these personalities. That is why they are there. Personalities that you don't give value to, you don't foster them. You know, like a foster child. You know, how you adopt a child uh, and you become a foster parent to foster children. Like that, you have fostered, adapted these personalities that live within you, each and every one of them keeps you alive, keeps you from dying, and keeps you in sansara. I'm a monk, but if there's a monk personality within me, that will stop me from fulfilling the role of a monk. Because the role of a monk is, is to set aside all my ways. Remember, we talked about this? My ways. Because whenever you have those personalities, there's a way in which you have to conduct yourself. Begin to identify those those roles, those personalities that you play. You're not just one person. You're lots of different people because your mind is not fixed. It arises and passes away. And each thought, each mind, each mind instance is able to construct a different personality. Each mind instance is able to construct different personality. At one point, it's a mother. At the next point, it's a daughter. Huh? At the next point, it's a sister. Yeah? At the next point, it's a grandchild or a grandmother. See how you play these roles in your lives? Yeah? At one point, you are a traitor. See? This is yeah, of course. This is rebirth. Hmm. <clears throat> so jati is that separation yeah so once once this baba which is the this this creation of that identity this feeling right and then you you go on to completely separate that so when you are you know when you are a mother you are not a daughter when you are a mother you are the mother that's why you say talk to me like because like don't talk to me like that because i'm your mother at that moment you are not a daughter You're not you're not you know you're not writing both of them at the same time. At that moment, you are the mother. But in front of your mother, you are the daughter. So this, this is possible because there's, there's, these minds arise and pass away, and in each of them you go through this process of paritasamupada. In each of them, and in each of them you are able to create a different personality. That is why this is possible. If there was only one that you had at birth, and the same one re- prevails until the end, then you could only be one one person. That could, you could only be a child. You would never. Sorry. Yeah. All of this is 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 the understanding of anicca. I'm explaining the concept of anicca, dukkha, and anatta all together. <clears throat> These are the consequences of not understanding anicca. The consequences of not understanding dukkha and anatta. Once we understand that these are simply mind moments, instances of the mind that arise and pass away, and the mind's purpose is simply to interpret a rupa, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, or a touch, or a thought. And the mind's purpose is simply that, now you understand that, you know, what is all this separation then? What is all this what are all these identities? These are all fallacies. There's no identity identity in a sight, is there? There's no identity in a sound. There's no such thing as my mother's sound. There's a sound. Mother is a, is a creation of your own world, and now you join the two together and go, "That's my mother." That's when it becomes special and sentimental. How do things have sentimental value? Think about it. Perhaps you, have, you all have, you know maybe there's something that your, 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 your late mother left behind. maybe something that belonged to your grandmother. I, you know, sometimes you know, maybe a tiara, or maybe maybe a ring, maybe a photo. You still hold, you still hoard them. Think about it. You know, mentally go, go into your homes, right, and open the cupboards in in that locked drawer. Huh? There'll be those things that your mother left behind for you, your father left behind for you. Those are things to someone else means absolutely no value. There's no value in it. Take it to the jeweler, to the to the goldsmith, and they'll go. Nah, this is worthless. I will not pay anything for it. You can leave it and go if you don't want it. No, 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 no. This is the most precious thing for me. How so? Why is a flock of hair so precious to a boy? To a lover? Hmm? Why is an old handkerchief so precious to a lover? Isn't that ridiculous? It's just a bit of cloth. And it's old. You know, they did some research. Did I talk to you about this... Uh, what was his name? I showed you a video, I think, the other day. There's a doctor... Uh, sorry, the name escapes me now. <clears throat> he's a he's a doctor in a in a university in the States. And uh, he's, he's doing some research as to how pleasure works. I wish we met. I could help him out. And he... So there's some research that he'd done. Do you all know George Clooney? He's, a, he's an actor, a well-known actor, right? So he's got this sweater that was put on sale. Okay? And then they also got an identical sweater but not the one that belonged to George Clooney and they put the two up for sale. Right? So one sold for a certain amount of money, let's say a hundred dollars. Right? The other was ten times that. Just think about why. And then when the person who so they bought it at auction Right, so these these things get auctioned, don't they? And then the when the person that uh came to buy it, the, the the winning bidder had said, please don't wash it. They wanted it to take it with them in the way that he'd worn it the last time. Don't wash it. If he had washed it, he would have it would have lost that value. Do you know? Uh can't remember her name now. There's a famous singer. Um no. a pop idol, uh, Britney, Britney Spears. Yeah? A bit of chewing gum. Shall I get you all a sick bag? (laughs) A bit of chewing gum that she had chewed on was sold at auction. And people pay a lot of money for that. I want you to think about why this happens. Now, it's easy for us to label these things, you know, and and have our own take on these things, but what's more important as doctors, right, as students of the mind, it's important for us to put that mind here on the on the surgical table and try and work out what's happening to that. See, in that person's mind, they have created this sentient being called Britney Spears. I exist and Britney exists, right? So therefore, things that belong to her are precious in my world. Hmm? Because she's precious, anything that is associated to her is precious. So I will pay a lot of money for that. Did I not show this video to you? I'll have it ready for next time. Ah, his name is Dr. Paul Bloom, professor. Professor Paul Bloom. Now I remember. He's doing a lot of research work on uh, how pleasure works, and he talks about art and how art, you know, is so valuable. You know, uh, at one point <clears throat> they'd sold uh, Mona Lisa, the the picture. No, it wasn't Mona Lisa. I think it was another painting. I'll save it for next week. You know, artwork. Uh, why they can demand so much value? It's because of that sentimentality. People associate identities to works of art. You know, that's why oh, and a piece of art by you know someone like Michelangelo or you know Leonardo. These things have a lot of value than you know something I drew. <laughs> You wouldn't take this even if I paid you to. <laughs> uh, but some, something drawn by that's why all pieces of art has to have a name. You know, who drew this is more important than what they've drawn. Because the who is a very big thing. <clears throat> because it, it, it allows and it helps and it it enables us to further that sense of separation. Without separation where is a Who? this sense of identity is something that is so precious so spot those within you those personalities you know who do you like to be associated with if you have an, if you have an answer to that then there's a someone that lives within you try and capture that that is why things can offend you Someone, that, you know, someone says something and it causes you a lot of pain is because there is an, an identity within you that you want to preserve and that you value and you treasure. And what has been said is a direct threat to that identity. If you are a mother, you, the last thing you want to hear is your children, your child having done something bad right, and has defamed you, in, has done something to insult you. To bring shame on the family. Hmm? Like, you know, even these Wallaw families, right? aristocratic families, and so on, you know, they, they, have, they place a lot of value on, on, on their nobility. So it'll be scandalous for someone to, you know, get into a relationship with someone that is below par. That's why parents are very particular about the kind of people that their children get into relationships with. Religion is another one, right if I'm a Buddhist, the last thing I'd want is my daughter or my or my son getting into relationship with someone else or from another religion that can be you know a real insult and it's not necessarily because we are looking at it from the child's perspective it's because it's 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 an attack onto the very person that I am my core values are being threatened this is what can happen and you know you know what happens after that, right? If if the parents find out that they're in such a kind of relationship, you know, terrible things can happen after that. <clears throat> That's why people look at uh, tribe and race and clan and such things. You know, certain surnames. Hmm? People are very particular about those things. Some surnames are of a uh, lower caste. Hmm? Some other surnames are of a higher caste. What's all this caste? You know, it's easy for philosophers and for psychologists to say, you know, after all, you know, under our skin, we are all blood and bones. So why, why have these differences? But what they don't understand is it is the mind that's doing this. So it's not, it's not enough for us to simply talk about, you know, we are all one, we are all just, you know, we're all human beings, so why, why do we have these, dif- these differences? For all the talk that people do, what they don't understand is where is the root of all this? Exactly. Until and unless you identify the root of this, those things will continue to haunt you. Sometimes it might be that a person who gets on stage and talks and advocates against you know, all this discrimination, all this segregation, and they talk about social harmony and unity, Right and, and and having human relationships, notwithstanding uh, you know these, these these caste systems and the, and the, and the racial identities and so on. You know, if you ask them, well, are you okay for your son to get married to that girl from a lower caste?" Let's not go there. Might be what they say. Because people can give a good talk, but when it time, when, you know, when it's time for your walk, they take a step back. <clears throat> because what they don't know is, this is all a creation of this self-sense of identity. So say, if you if you believe, if you've grown up believing that you are of a low caste. Okay, so I mean, I'm, I'm going to lay it out there. All right, if you, if you have grown up thinking that you are of a low caste, I want you to ask the question, what part of you is low caste? If you have grown up thinking that you are of a high caste, what part of you is that high caste? Is it not simply and merely that creation of the mind where you have this sense of identity, this sense of you know, separateness, and it's all the attributes that you have learned are part of that, that self-identity? Just like you have grown up thinking that you're a male or a female that has become part of your identity, your caste has become a part of your identity. Your race has become a part of your identity. Your religion has become a part of your identity. Your faith has become a part of your identity. Your profession has become a part of your identity. These are all personalities that you try to foster and and keep alive. Each one multiplying reasons for your grievance. Each one multiplying your surface area for attack. Because when you are simply that, it's very difficult to attack you. Right? When you are simply an I, because that's the last last bit to fall out. But when you are I, and then after that you are a mother, and you are a daughter, and you are a wife, and you're a sister, and then you are a doctor and then you are also uh, you know, well regarded in your local uh, societies. and when you're also uh, a very successful businesswoman, and when you're also someone else, an aunt, a niece and right all these things, see <clears throat> these are all all of these points increase your surface area for attack you become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. These are all the identities that you have to sustain. See how many you can spot within yourself. See how many you can spot within yourself. You know, when we ordain, that is why they even change our names. To put aside all this. We are no longer this person, that person, the other person. It's a, it's a symbol of that. Changing of the name, is symbol, uh, it's a, it symbolizes that. That's not to say that changing of the name means changing everything. Internally, That's a different matter. That you, you need to practice the path. But it's a symbol of that. That's why we are made to look similar to everyone. We are, we are made to look equal. We all shave our heads, same robes. right? All equals. No ups and downs. No differences. And the only possessions we get are the arms ball and the ropes. It's a training that we receive right from the start. Put out, shed out all those layers that you have around you. See how many personalities you can spot within yourself. As I said, you know, work through your week. On Monday, who are you? Monday morning, who are you? At Monday morning, 8 8, 8 a.m. in the morning, who are you? Are you the boss? Hmm? At, At afternoon... In the afternoon, who are you? At lunchtime, who are you? And then, you know, as the, it, the day progresses into evening, who are you? At night, who are you? When you're on the bus, you're a commuter, aren't you? So therefore, you have your rights as a commuter. When you're on the train, you have your rights. So if you've paid for a ticket, you you, you have a right to, you know, to, to travel. So then, if someone comes and questions you, why are you here? Uh, you know, I, I bought a ticket. I have a right to be here. See, now you are defending that personality, uh, the commuter personality. When you go to the shop and you've paid for the goods, right? now you are the consumer. You are the buyer. Now you have those, pers- those rights that you have to protect and preserve. <clears throat> when you're on the road, if you're a pedestrian, right? now there's another personality that you have to preserve. Right? I have the pedestrian rights. Right, so you can't you know, why did you drive onto the onto the pavement? Right? that was, that's for us, that's for me. I have my rights. I only crossed at the at the zebra crossing. Uh, how can you do that? How can you do this? You know these, this is that you 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 defend that personality. And when you're a driver, you defend that personality. You see how how mad people get when they're on the road. Road rage. Sometimes you know, if people get into a small accident. Minor accident. People go, you know, they have a fury, and if someone just drives past you. They want they overtake you, and you want to be, uh, you know, at, at the front of the queue. And someone overtakes you, and then it becomes a race after that. Have you seen how sometimes bus drivers they do this race? and people get so offended sometimes they show you the middle finger happens just just spot this now, when you're driving on the road if if someone wants to overtake you and for some reason you are unable to give them way or you have to you have to keep ahead of them for some reason right say maybe you're following someone else when they drive past you when they drive past you at some point look at the look at the look at their eyes and look at how they look at you. They'll give you the stare of death. Have you not seen that? Haven't you seen that? They give you the stare of death. It's a threat. They can threat because they're in their car, you know. So <laughs> they probably wouldn't do that if they got out of the car. But in their car, you know, they're safe. So they give you the stare of threat. So the, the, the stare of death. It's like if I catch you outside somewhere, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Happens a lot on the roads. Haven't you seen that? They never smile because then there, there's another personality. These are all personalities. When you are at the temple, there's another personality. Generally speaking, sometimes when you go to observe seal, there's another personality. <coughs> In some places, we try to pretend that we are more, more virtuous than we really are. Again, another personality that we are trying to we try to sir, maintain. More virtuous than we are. <coughs> So, whenever someone says something, and if it hurts you, try and spot which personality they have just offended. Ah, yes. How do you let go of each of them? The, way, the same way you let go of any of them, which is to understand that these are all creations simply for the purpose of suffering. You achieve nothing else other than suffering by doing this, this is Sankitana Panchupada Kanda dukkha. This is dukkha. It is not the mind's job to do any of these things. This is all superfluous to the mind's existence. Beg your of course. You know, we 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 say we think we are at rest. We are never at rest. Only an arahant is really at rest because until you achieve the state of sainthood you're always creating this this separation which does not exist because it does not exist the mind is always on overdrive you know we know that this is this is uh, uh, this is insanity right this is insanity it's like baby natasha's mother when the baby wasn't there and she thought the baby when the baby died but she couldn't uh, she couldn't bear it now she started to think to herself no my baby is still alive same thing goes on here the mind is always looking for an identity separatedness and it does not it does not exist therefore each time the mind comes into being it has to create it so how can the mind ever be at rest when the mind is always so busy there's no time to rest you can't rest in peace there's no rest for the wicked you heard that saying no rest for the wicked wicked why because you are not in harmony with nature. It's like when Adam and Eve, hmm, they plucked that tree from the, from the forbidden tree. So they plucked the apple from the forbidden tree. It was at that point, all hell broke loose. That was the moment when Pandora's box opened. Until then, it is said in the, in, in the, in the books, in the Holy Bible, that until then, they saw no difference between the two of them. They had no recognition that this was man and woman. There was no separation. They did not see, you know, them as being man and woman. So therefore, they had no reason for shame. Of course, tanha so soko, tanha Until then, you know, the world was at peace. Birds and bees, and you know, all the beasts and everyone, you know, they they lived in harmony. You didn't have to toil and labor. But then, what happened? they wanted that knowledge this is knowledge of ignorance they wanted to identify themselves as separate to god that is what god had said right yeah don't go against nature right let nature be supreme nature is supreme nature is the overarching system that that takes everything into consideration and keeps everything in balance don't try to overstep the mark That is what they didn't heed. So, what did that serpent do? Hmm? This is the ignoble friend, Asat Purusha. From somewhere it came, right? And the evil serpent came and put this thought into Eve's head. Wasn't it? Into Eve's head. Which signifies femininity. Not females. Not the females. Is this characteristic, the kanta gathiya? I'm not talking about the males and females in the house. So please don't be offended. It's that feminine nature? Yeah, itiri Something for me. That is itiri gathiya. Keep something for me. Hmm? The the, uh, the the nature to to uh, hoard. Yes, indeed. The nature to hold, To keep to, the nature to keep something for oneself. That is, a, that is the, 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 the need to separate something from myself. So, what God had said was, you know, God is supreme, nature is supreme, God equals nature. So, nature is supreme, right? So, live, be happy, be merry. Don't look for separatedness. And then, what did they do? When that ignoble friend, the Asat Purusha, came and put that thought into that woman's head, then she shared it with Adam, and then Adam had to go and pluck that fruit. And take a bite of that. The moment he did that, ignorance, that, was, that symbolizes ignorance. That symbolizes attachment. And it is said the moment he took that bite and he gave Eve a bite of the, the same apple, now immediately they started to see that one was man and the other was woman. Until then, that was not the case. The first thing they had to do was cover up their private parts. That is what it says. Because now you see a separation. You and I, we are separate. We are different. Look at all these things. They are all separate. Now God is separate. We are separate. Until then, they were all one with God. That is how I interpret that. That is my interpretation of it. I am not, I'm not arguing with anyone whether that is what the Bible actually means, but that is my interpretation. We are all free to interpret whatever the way we, we feel, right? That is my interpretation of it. So that is what happens. <clears throat> there, was a man, there was no man identity and woman identity. It all came after that. Ignorance. You are all one with nature, one with God. And I think this is a very good way to introduce this concept to you know, people of that faith. So we don't go against them. We help them better understand what the, the scriptures say. Because if, if there can only be one version of the truth, there can't be two versions of the truth. And once you've seen the truth, everything you see around you, you see it through that lens, the lens of truth. And everything makes sense that way. So I can't help myself from seeing, reading the, those words in that way. That's the way I see them. That's the way I read them. So see which identity is threatened. And see how many identities you have. So in answer again to the lady's question, how do you deal with these identities when they when they spur up, when they spawn? How do you deal with these identities? It is by understanding Anicca, dukkha, and Anatta. Understanding the nature, understanding the nature of nature. In other words, understanding nature. Nature is everything. You and everything around you. In fact, there is no difference between you and everything around you if everything is the same. All there is, is nature. And everything in nature is characteristically anicca, which means there is nothing separate. They're all causes and effects. They're all causes and effects. There are sights and sounds and smells, taste, touch, and there are thoughts. They're all manifestations of the same energy. They're all manifestations of the same energy. It's like, like water. When you heat it, it becomes steam and vapor. When you cool it, it becomes ice. It's the same water, isn't it? Just application or the taken out of energy causes that difference. But it's a, these are the same molecules. In the same way, you, madam, are different to the lady sat behind you because of the energy, the amount of energy that's working in operation. We could at any point disintegrate this body, disintegrate that body, bring it all back together again, and then create different bodies out of that. No problem. If we could do that in a lab, we could do it. If we had the power to manipulate that energy, we would be able to do it. But that is how you came into being. You are the apple that you had this morning. And that apple grew on an apple tree which sucked up the nourishment, the nutrients that was in the ground, in the soil. And where did that where did those nutrients come into the soil? It was an animal that went and dropped it there, and where did that animal get it because it had something else to eat and what did that animal eat? That animal ate maybe a, a, a fruit or some something else that came from something else. So you see after all, if you are what you eat, then you are un- invariably part of all nature, and the mind is simply the process. To interpret what we have in nature that's all its job is, but then why does this happen that is all because of ignorance it is only the mind that can be ignorant we can't talk of ignorance in a world where there are no minds this will never be ignorant because ignorance is a knowledge wrong knowledge yeah knowledge can only be held by a mind yeah so therefore misinterpretation of the world can only be done by a mind. This is the mind gone wrong, mind gone stray, mind being hijacked. When that happens, in other words, when the mind does not see what is common about everything, and when it tries to distinguish characteristics between you know things, and it starts to see, if it, when, it, when the mind wishes to identify itself as a self, then this happens because the mind goes, in, goes, goes into vexation. Now we know, we know the process, right? The mind goes into vexation and it looks for relief from that vexation. And in the process of going for that relief from vexation happens abhisankara. And as a result of that, all the way down to bhava and then jati. And then that separatedness feeling comes into being. And once you feel you are separate, now through that lens, everything in this world is separate. So the the reason that you feel that this is a fixed entity is because you feel that you are a fixed entity. That is why. So therefore, everything you see around you, they become fixed entities. So you say, this is a pen. Okay? And if this breaks, right, when I dismantle all this and take all the parts, parts away, you'll say, now the pen is broken. That's what you'll say, the pen is broken. And then you say, if I put all this plastic into a, into a crucible and, and, and boil it, now you'll say, now the, pre- the pen has liquefied. You'll keep on referring to that pen. Yeah. Because it was simply a manifestation. Yeah. It was simply a manifestation. That these causes have come together in a certain configuration, and that configuration we refer to as a pen. But you see it as a fixed object. Because you don't you don't recognize that these are all causes that have come together to give you this effect. Remember that hmm? there's no third beat here, is there? But play these two things together. See? Now you hear you hear something that I didn't play. That is an effect. That is a manifestation. Where did that third thing come from? It was simply the mind putting these two things together and something that wasn't there in the first place came out into, into being. That is what's happening here. So the same thing happens in your minds. Your mind's purpose is simply to identify, to, to register, to recognize, to respond, to perceive and you know, to do those things. It was never meant to perceive a unique identity, a self he was not meant to identify yourself as a husband or a wife a, a, a son or a daughter he was not meant to do that remember so as as vipaka as vipaka, you know there are certain vipakas that will always work together okay so we live together as a family the problem is not living together as a family the problem is when we identify ourselves as these different personalities because when you look at the mind on its own, madam, there is no mother or father. There are no mother minds or father minds. There are no brother minds or sister minds. There are simply minds. These this mother figure, father figure, these personalities are all creations of the mind due to ignorance. Therefore, because the mind wishes to always identify itself as a unique and identifiable self, it is that quest which is the mind is always on that is why you then begin to see that you know we are in a family now this is why you know sorrow and grief and all the, all of them come into being you know this jati Pachya jara jati Pachya marana jati Pachya shoka jati Pachya parideva jati Pachya dukkha jati Pachya do let's take one or two of them right jati Pachya shoka which is due to jati arises sorrow how does that happen think about it for a second Right. Sorrow, we can say, is when we are departed from something we love. Something or someone. So for that to happen, this something or someone must exist, right? Where do they exist? In our own minds. These somethings and someones exist in our own mind because we are a someone. That is what happens First. We are a someone and then some, the other entities we see around us also become someone's. But really, you know, it, it would be better to think of all of us as robots. There's a hardware and there's a software. That is what's really going on. But the software is corrupted because of a bug. And what happens then, imagine if two robots... Okay, really think about this for a second. Okay, everyone, think about this for a second. Imagine if two robots... Held hands together and said, "This is my wife," and the other said, "This is my husband." What would you think? They they they've come from two different factories, one in China, one in Taiwan, right? You bring them, right, from these two companies. You 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 switch, charge them, and then switch them on, and then all of a sudden, the two robots work, walk towards each other. They hold hands and they say, "This is my husband," and the other said, "This is my wife." What would you what would you think about that? <laughs> Something wrong with the software, right? Because how on earth can a robot feel that way? It, it can't happen. So now you know that there's a, there's a, there's a problem with the coding, there's a problem in the software, there's a bug. You'd return it to the company and say, you know, get, can I get a replacement? How come you do that? How come you hold hands and you say, this is my husband, this is my wife? Ignorance, that is the bug. Because a robot's coding, a robot's software is purely there. The robot can have sensors, microphones, right? light receptors. You could even have taste receptors, right? because ultimately it's just chemical uh, reactions. Okay? And you could have sensory receptors and all that. Now, imagine yourself as a robot for a second. That's an arahant. That's an arahant. which purely identifies sight sound smell taste and touch but then you ask me well what about kindness and compassion and things like that yes that is acceptable and that is entirely possible we are not talking about what what I'm not trying to say is that an arahan does not have kindness and compassion and you know and, and gratitude and and mercy no, that's not what I'm saying. What an arahant doesn't have is a sense of identity. He does not project kindness to a person. He projects kindness to what actually exists at that moment, which is a mind. A mind exists. A person doesn't exist. You know, when we did, that's why the other day, we, when we were preparing ourselves for the karmastana Sajjaina, like last week or the week before, I said, when we chant this Karmasthana, Hmm? May I and all beings in all worlds. I reminded you, you need to think about minds, not people. Minds exist, folks. Right? So a mind can be compassionate about another mind because that mind is suffering. Minds suffer, don't they? So how does sorrow come into being then? When the mind goes wrong, the mind goes awry, and the mind begins to believe that it is an identity, and now it creates another identity on the outside, then now you have this emotional connection, a sentimental connection. That's where sorrow comes into being. What about something like Dukkha? That could be a tricky one for some people. Dukkha, you can think of it as the personification of physical pain. Personification of physical pain, because physical pain is real. That hurts. It would even hurt an arahant. But what an arahant doesn't feel is that I am being hurt. When jati happens, everything becomes a component of that jati. Everything that happens on the outside feels like it's either a threat or a reward to the jati. It jatifies everything. Or otherwise personifies everything. That is the nature of jati. So when someone says something that hurts you, you got to think why did it hurt me? All that was said were some words, right? But you felt that it was an attack on me. This person has attacked me. You know this is why if a young child were to you know maybe your, your two year old, you know come and came to you and said bad on me. You're not offended by that. Because from your perspective, the child saying something, you know, you know, it's just a child. You know, what does a child know? Like, but when a grown-up does that, now you're offended. See, therefore, you have a grown-up and you have a child. Huh? And inside of you, you have, you know, you have your own personality. So now there's that personality clash. All of this is happening inside your own mind. See, that's why I say you are the architect of your own suffering. <clears throat> Once you understand the nature of anicca okay that all things are simply in a flux this is all energy in a flux and the mind's job is simply to interpret that flux that flux of energy okay the mind's job is to interpret that flux of energy now you are, now you begin to understand well in that case if that is the case what i am feeling right now as a separate unique identity must be dukkha not sukha What do we learn as ignorance? You know, right from the old days. Nitya, Sukha, atta, right? Now we talk about anitya, dukkha, and anatta. Yeah. So, what is nitya, Sukha, and atta? Indeed, nitya is this fixedness. Your 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 perception that the world is fixed. It is not cause and effect. There are identities. There are fixed objects. There are entities. There are people. There are beings. There's a mother, there's a father, there are fixed entities. That is Nietzsche. If that is Nietzsche, right, then what I'm going through right now, this, this, this self is also a fixed identity. Therefore, surely that is Sukha. What is threatening this is the Dukkha, is what you think. <laughs> huh? Yeah, outside. Anything that threatens the Sukha is the Dukkha. See, that's why we are completely turning it on its head. <laughs> this is why they say, you know, in their in their appearance, you know, the uh, the arahants and their own, you know, it's like when they become a sotapanna. They say, you know, it's as if something that had been turned right side down has been turned upside the right, right side up. That's what's going on. Their interpretation of the world being nicha sukha suka, therefore, you know, this sense of self being so pleasurable and everything from the outside is the threat. Right, therefore, atta atta meaning separate, fixed, pleasurable. Therefore separate identity. It, this is an affirmation that I am, here, yes, separate. This is good. Now your problems are everything that comes from the outside. Because if I am good, then who's bad? Everyone else and everything else is bad. All the threats come from the outside. The Buddha comes along and he completely changes this, turns it on its head. And he says, no, anicca. Not nicca. Nothing is fixed. Everything is dynamic. Everything is in a a state of flux. Everything is in a state of transience. This is all just energy coming and going. At every moment, there are manifestations. The mind's job is simply to interpret that manifestation. This is a manifestation. Interpret the manifestation. There's no problem with that. But when you misinterpret that manifestation, now you think this as being a fixed entity. That is where we go with this. But if you understand that this is simply a manifestation and the mind has done purely, nothing other than interpreting the manifestation, then you recognize that, well, hang on a second, if that is the case, how come I feel that I am a separate identity, something fixed? That can't be sukha then. That has to be dukkha. That has to be dukkha. In other words, jati. If that is jati, then it is not a separate thing, but simply a perception of separateness. That is anatta. Me atta. Atta is separate. Anatta is, it is not separate. It's simply a perception of separateness, of identity. What you have, ladies and gentlemen, in your minds is a perception of identity, not an identity. That perception is dukkha. When you don't know that it is simply a perception, then you think that this is really a unique identity, an entity. That you think is Sukha. And if that is Sukha, then clearly it is a separate entity, which is Atta. How Atta? Because it is Nichya, all things are fixed. See how one leads to the other? That's why the Buddha says, Yad Tandukkan Tadanatta Netamama Neto Hamasmi Nameso Attati if all there exists is the nature of anicca then this sense of self that you are feeling is not pleasure it's not self it is what I call in my sasana dukkha in other words jati which is the product of haticca samuppada how paticca samuppada because of anicca see how beautiful the teaching is Parichasamapada describes the anicca nature of dukkha. Let me say that again. Parichasamapada or dependent origination describes the anicca nature of dukkha. It talks about how dukkha comes into being. If there's a way in which something can be explained as to how it comes into being, how then can you say it's a fixed thing? Huh? Because you can explain to me how to cook a dal curry you will have to admit that dal curry is not a fixed thing. Its causes come in together at the right temperature, stirred the right amount of time, times on you know, at the right temperature, with the right ingredients. So therefore it's a manifestation. That's why you can change the taste, right? You can change the flavor. A little bit more salt, a little less spice. Huh? So the product is an effect. That's why you keep changing the causes. So that's why you, you, know, you take a little bit onto your palm and you give it a taste test. If it's not right, you, you change one of the effects. Don't you? You change one of the causes. When you change the causes, the effect is a completely different one. So what you have is the result, is the the resultant force. Like, you remember when you study physics? Uh, You have something like this, a fixed object, right? You pull in this direction, one force, pull in this direction, one force, right? 10 newtons that way, 10 newtons this way. Tell me which direction this is going to move. How so? No one's pulling it in this direction. Think about it. No one's pulling it in this direction. Can you see a force acting that way? No, but then why does it move that way? That is the effect. That is the resultant effect. These are the causes and that is the effect. It's not working in either of those two directions. It is working in the resultant direction. Because that is an effect. Dukkha is an effect of dependent origination. That is why from the moment I started talking about dependent origination, I always ask you the question, dependent origination of what? Remember? Dependent origination of Dukkha, of Jati. So the Buddha says, <clears throat> Yadha Say it out loud with me. Yadha Yantan Dukkha. Right? So if this is Anicca, if the whole universe, if the whole cosmos, if everything in it and within it is of the Anicca nature, then this cannot be a self, it is jati. You could also say anicca jati anatta, same thing. You can use them interchangeably because dukkha is simply a synonym for jati. Not this dukkha, hmm? not mother cry, mother died, and I'm crying, not that dukkha. That is not the dukkha that the Buddha came into this world to talk about. We've talked about this so many times, remember? You lose something you like. That is not the Dukkha that Buddha comes in to talk about. Even animals understand that. Have you not seen a mother dog crying because the, it's lost its puppy? Animals understand that. So you don't need a Buddha to explain that Dukkha. You fail an exam. You feel stressed. That is Dukkha. That is not the Dukkha Buddha talks about. The Buddha talks about the root of all that Dukkha, which is Jati. I wish, you know, he in fact referred to it as Jati rather than Dukkha because today, you know, Dukkha is misinterpreted by so many people and they think that, you know, they, they have understood Buddhism. That is not Buddhism. The Buddha doesn't come into this world to teach something that everyone knows. Then what did he discover by himself? Old age is Dukkha. Huh? <laughs> you need the Buddha to tell you that? Death is Dukkha. You need the Buddha to tell you that? No. Losing a loved one is Dukkha. You need the Buddha to tell you that? No. Duh. We get that. But why is the loss of a loved one so painful? Because there is something else that is going on. This is jati. So if this is jati, then don't identify it as a self, which is anatta. Don't identify it as a separate entity. It is not a separate entity. So once you get to anatta, now you recognize, ah, so then this is not I am not a separate entity to everyone and anything else. I am not separate. This understanding is an attack on all these identities. Your contemplation of anicca, dukkha and anatta. See, each of these things are what? Separations, right? Each of these are separations. Each of these are separate identities. Separate entities. Why? Because of this. Fixed. Therefore, sukha right you I, I identify within yourself as 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 pleasurable right and then atta as separate a separate entity once that interpretation is is removed and, and replaced with anichaduk and anatta now all these separate entities they start falling apart dissolving yeah i want you to start to think about how jati is the cause for all the 11 great fires I want to talk about that in a future sermon as well. You know, how does jati lead to jara? And, you know, the Buddha says jati pachya jara. So he can't be talking simply about the decay that you and I know. That we've always talked about. This can't be the the withering away of a flower. Hmm? It can't simply be the decaying of the body. Because if if that is the case, then then that, that is why people think that jati is simply birth right birth as in the mother giving you know birth to a child people think that is jati that is how we've learned we used to think but then you know our eyes were opened by our teachers this is not the jati that the buddha talks about birth leads to death birth leads to decay yes not that birth a different kind of birth the birth of jati leaves you sorrowful and grieving decay that's how you need to look at it when jati happens Death becomes a painful experience. Otherwise, death is simply the departing of mind and body. What is there to be painful about that? Think about it for a second. How can old age bring you suffering, folks? How can old age bring you suffering? What's grown old? The mind has, has it? No, the body, right? So how is it then that decay causes suffering? it's when the mind identifies the body as being part of it. When the mind personifies the body, jatifies the body, that's when this decay is an attack on the mind itself. Then the mind feels that I am decaying. That's what happens. I am about to die. That's what happens. That's how jatipacca jara, jatipacca marana, jatipacha shoka, sorrow, See, I am sorrowful because my my this person, my that person, my that thing has passed away. Dhatipatya Parideva. Lamentation. Dhatipatya dukkha Suffering, you know, physical pain. Personification of physical pain. Backache. For whom? My backache. That's where the problem is. Otherwise, it's simply a backache. Headache. Whose headache? My headache. 75% of all your aches Are because of your jati. Only 25 is actually what you feel physically. The remaining 75 is the personification of that pain. So you know, when you have pains and aches, not only should you go to your physiotherapist, you should also come here (laughs) because I can help sort out 75% of it. 25% will remain. As even as an arahant, you will have to suffer that. But that is simply Vipaka. That is also Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyan. When a nerve is pressed, right? that is an electrical current. yeah. And that electrical current goes to your brain and now the brain, working with the mind, has to interpret that. Because that's the mind's job, to interpret. What? Rupa. This is a Sparsha Rupa. So the mind has to interpret that. So the mind receives it, the mind registers it, the mind recognizes it, the mind responds to it, and the mind perceives it. That's it. It's just pain, physical pain. But why do people cry about a headache or a backache? Personification. When the mind creates this jati, now to whom has this threat come? To me. Now it becomes painful. 75% added pain. That is how jati pacca dukkha. Jati pacca do Hmm? disappointment, discontentment. Things happen in this world. They are not meant to content or discontent anyone. They are just things, stuff, events. That's all they are. But when you identify yourself with one of those events, hmm? now that event it becomes part of, your, part, of your, part of your existence, part of your, your well-being. Now you, want, you have those expectations that you project on those events. You want it to rain tomorrow, don't you? You want it to shine tomorrow. See? There are just events. But when you personify them, when you have an agenda, a hidden agenda for them, that's when you begin to suffer. That's why the 11 great fires are all based in jati. Take out jati and all you have are simply events in this world. Nothing related or connected to you. It's simply motion. You put the E in motion and make it emotion. Otherwise it's just motion. Motion is just vipaka. You make it emotion. So this is what you want to try and understand. So when someone says something that might hurt your feelings, the first thing you need to do is take a deep breath and then ask yourself the question, which identity, which personality have they just attacked? Once you've identified that, now you got to get to work. You can thank them for helping you, recognizing that there's a problem within you. You know, they they're like going to the doctor for a diagnosis, aren't they? That's so why whenever I, I if I ever feel that my mind is hurt or someone says something to hurt me, you know, that's a time for celebration. They've helped me find my enemy, and my enemy is not out there. My enemy is here. Somewhere, I have not fulfilled my understanding. It's not complete. That is why I'm hurt. So whenever that happens, it is a time for me to celebrate. So take that into the lab. Come to the sermons. Ask the questions. Try and understand this. This is why I say, no, make use. Make absolute use of the sessions you get in the afternoons. I I urge you to make those occasions and, and opportunities for you to actually talk the Dhamma. You know, that's how we do in our morning sessions with the Anagarika Mahatmiyas and the Swami Nuhanses. Did Guru Andhra talk to you about the program that they had in Australia recently, the meditation program? So we, we did this uh, very similar model to what we do here over there. So what we do is people sit together in groups of four or five <coughs> and each person gets an opportunity to explain to their group, each person gets an opportunity to explain to their group <coughs> their understanding of the Dhamma. And we encourage them to talk through one of the prob- a problem that they have. <clears throat> so they don't have to say it's a problem that they have. They can you know, generalize it or say, you know, I have a friend of mine has a problem like this and I'd like to talk it through. And then they, then they talk it through. The best thing about that is there are four other people listening and then they can ask you questions, cross-question, cross right? And the Swami Nohanse can also question you to help ensure that by the time you walk out of that, you have a perfect answer to that problem. <clears throat> I don't know many places where you get that chance to do it it's the best way to learn something to spill it all out because you are in the company of noble friends no matter what you say will go or stand against you it will all be used to your benefit to your advantage even if you say the dumbest thing it's better to say that in the in the presence of noble ones isn't it because what they'll do is they'll realize ah, okay you've gone wrong here how about this? What about when this happens? They'll cross-question you. And then they'll guide you to come to the right answer. So instead of getting the Swami said to give you another sermon in the afternoons, in case that's what some of you might have planned, I suggest, <clears throat> so this might be what you're already doing. Each of you take your turn to explain to them what you have learned today. You know, today is a great example of that. See if you can identify a personality that you want to Exterminate and talk through one of them in today's session. Hmm? However much time you have, because there are lots of Swami Nansis who come and help you with the session. Like split your time up between you know, each of you. You know, maybe you all of you won't have a chance today, at least a few of you can, right? Then you have next week. And then another other one can take a time. And say it out loud. Explain what you have understood to the Swami Nansis and to others in the group. Then they'll ask you questions, all done with. Infinite compassion towards you. So no matter what you say, no matter what mistakes you make, you don't need to be shy or afraid. Where you need to be shy and afraid is to make mistakes in the presence of, or in the absence of people who wish the very best for you. In the presence of a teacher, that is the best place to make mistakes. This is what we do every day. You have the chance to do once a week. So I suggest you make use of that. So what you have understood today Apply this into a, a real, practical life problem in today afternoon session. Is my advice to you, and talk it through, and help the Swami Narsa guide you. Uh, get the Swami Narsa to guide you. Does that make sense? So that was a wonderful question. I think we are all very grateful for that. For that nicely put question. <coughs> Whenever you have a situation where you are feeling pain because of something that someone has said, it is not what they said that caused you pain. It is because something, a personality within you has just been put under threat, been attacked. Identify that personality and kill it. Zap it. Once you've done that, there is nothing and no one in this world that can hurt you. No one can hurt you without your permission. You allow them to hurt you. (laughs) Okay, right. Time's up. I'll take a moment to transfer merits and bring the sermon to a close. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gem, chanting, pirit, listening to the dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today first and foremost let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in the receipt of the lord buddha's teaching with the immense gratitude let us transfer this merit to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis upasakas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the tripitaka which is thankfully available to us today to study understand and comprehend the dhamma Let us transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the Noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us transfer these merits to Guru Swami Nuhansi as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery and the Anagarikas and Anagarika amenities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbāna. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the Noble Eightfold Path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to the Devas and Brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfil the sasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits their prosperous divine power and wisdom, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sir, sir, sir. Let us take a moment to transform this to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara and to those who have helped, supported and assisted us along the way. May us, us transform this to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation and may all those who have lost their lives in the war, be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities, such as the tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, and pandemics, blizzards, forest fires, and so on. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them, and may, to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu that is all resolved, that may, to the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we we'll be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land, and finally, may, to the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an Arahatan Mahase or an Arahatheranin Mahanse in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.